the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 18, Episode 9. Three vintage Christmas movies you may have missed. Talking with Sean Chang. Part of the holiday tradition for many of us is to watch classic Christmas movies, such as It's a Wonderful Life, White Christmas, Miracle on 34th Street, Holiday Inn, to mention but a few. Our guest today, Sean Chang, is going to review three of his favorite vintage Christmas-themed movies that you may never have watched, but they're classics in their own right. Hi, Sean, and welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Uh, thanks for having me back. And I want to thank the listeners, first of all, for uh, taking the time to listen to us talk about movies in the calendar year of 2022. And I hope that they'll come back in 2023 for uh, even more. Today, I'm going to talk about three Christmas films that happen to be my favorites. Christmas in Connecticut, starring Barbara Stanwyck and Dennis Morgan. Christmas Holiday, a film noir thriller starring uh, Gene Kelly, Deanna Durbin, and directed by a famous uh, director of film noirs from Germany named Robert Siodmak, and a very, very terrifying and suspenseful horror thriller from 1974 that was filmed in Canada called Black Christmas, starring Olivia Hussey, Margot Kidder, Andrea Martin, and John Saxon, directed by Bob Clark. But before I get started into it, I wanted to quickly mention to the listeners that you and I briefly considered doing a show today uh, for the final show of the year about the Netflix show about Harry and Meghan. Uh, I had a friend whose opinion I, I truly value actually tell me that if we were going to do that as the topic for the show he would not listen to it because he's so because <laughs> he's because he thinks they're narcissists and i suspect he's very he's very turned off by them and as such he encouraged us to do a show about christmas movies that are not it's a wonderful life if he's listening to this this one this show this one's for you to get, get back to the subject at hand, these movies happen to be, like I mentioned earlier, my favorite Christmas movies of all time. And uh, Christmas in Connecticut, I would say, is actually fairly well-known, but not nearly as well-known as those other Christmas movies that, that you mentioned. It's a romantic comedy from Warner Brothers in, from 1945. Barbara Stanwyck stars as all the people who describe this movie describe her character as sort of a Martha Stewart-type magazine columnist who writes about, you know, how to, how, basically how to be a, you know, really, you know, top-notch homemaker and maintaining a beautiful home and cooking fabulous meals. But in actuality, she does not know how to cook at all. And the comedy situation of this movie is set up because her magazine publisher, played by the wonderful character actor Sidney Greenstreet, wants her to host a Navy war hero um, for the holiday season, played by Dennis Morgan. And she's got to quickly scramble to set up a house, get herself a husband, procure a baby because she's written about having a baby in her magazine columns, and set everything up. And, and, and then also deal with the fact that the magazine publisher, her boss, has invited himself um, over for 
Christmas for the holidays as well. So it's a it's a comedy of errors. Once she meets the Dennis Morgan character, the the uh, the war hero, she falls for him, and mm-hmm. it becomes a, a really charming romantic comedy. But it's also a comedy that's filled with a lot of mistakes and misunderstandings. It's it's like an early episode of Three's Company in some instances. It also reminded me of I Love Lucy. I mean, mm-hmm. the plot is very convoluted. It's charming. It's fun. Yes. Nobody gets hurt. No hurt feelings or anything like that. But it reminded me of I Love Lucy. And don't forget with I Love Lucy in the later episodes, she actually moved to Connecticut too, but I digress. Mm-hmm. That's actually a really interesting analogy that you that you made there about that. Um, one of the key things I like about Christmas in Connecticut is that it's such a food-themed movie. Every time anyone watches that movie, they just can't help but feel hungry. And um, <laughs> if I'm cooking prime rib for the holidays, um, either for Thanksgiving or Christmas, I always have that movie playing in the background along with a film noir starring Joan Crawford uh, called Mildred Pierce and the John Ford Western uh, called The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance because each of those three movies have as a key element characters that are constantly cooking delicious food. Mm -hmm. So I always have Christmas in Connecticut as one of the three films playing in the background to keep inspiring me as I'm cooking throughout the day to try to inspire me to you know turn out a wonderful dish um so food is a very key theme about that movie and i think maybe one element for why the film has risen in prominence through the decades is because the thing about it's wonderful life is that for some people some people love it. Some people are really, you know, engaged by, you know, the sentimentality of its wonderful life. And other people really do not want sentimentality um, for the holidays because they're already dealing with a lot of issues in their lives. And I think having something that uses Christmas as a backdrop, but it's not meant to be a backdrop to evoke sentimentality, but actually to evoke comedy and humor and romance, I think people I think people are more responsive to that. I also think another reason why people are responsive to it is, is that it was one of the great triumphs in the career of Barbara Stanwyck. In my opinion, Barbara Stanwyck was the greatest actress that classic Hollywood gave us. Uh-huh. I mean, some people, might, some people might refer to Betty Davis as the person who was the you know, best actress of that era. Other people might refer to Joan Crawford, but I really think it's actually, but I really think it's actually uh, Barbara Stanwyck because she was so versatile in the films that she did. And, and, but she was a great actress of that era because she simply was so versatile. She did films in all genres. She did comedies and dramas. She wasn't tied down to just doing melodramas the way Joan Crawford, Betty Davis was. So I revere her as the greatest actress of that era. And she also was one of the smartest ones because um, as she got older, she uh, embraced the medium of television. So uh, in a way that the other two did not. I think they just thought of television as something to uh, keep them busy until they got their next film offer, whereas Barbara Stanwyck recognized the possibilities of what television had to offer. Sure. So I, I remember think- she was the she was the major Patriarch in uh, what Big Valley with yeah. Linda Evans. Uh, I think that was the first time that Linda Evans had a really big primetime role. Yeah, I would agree. And then, of course, Barbara Stanwyck appeared in The Thornbirds opposite. The Thornbirds. Yes, uh, Richard Chamberlain. Richard Chamberlain. Yes. yes, exactly. And she also had an anthology series that some people may find um, either streaming on YouTube or other places called The Barbara Stanwyck Show, where each week she played a different character in a different storyline and scenario where she really got a chance to show her versatility. And so, but going back to Christmas in Connecticut, it's a Warner Brothers movie um, from the 1940s. And Warner Brothers was one of my favorite studios of the classic era of Hollywood. They had what I called gritty glamour. I mean, they were glamorous, but it wasn't phony glamour the way MGM could be. And the stars of the film include Dennis Morgan, who is one of the most charming leading men of Warner Brothers of that period, and character actors like S.Z., 
nicknamed Cuddles uh, Sakal, who is a character actor from Europe who everyone remembers from films like Casablanca. Sidney Greenstreet, of course, was also from films like Casablanca and um, Maltese Falcon. So you've got these Warner Brothers actors being really lighthearted in a way that sometimes they don't get to play. So I really recommend the film for that reason. I'll move on to the next film. Before you go, let's just take a moment and just remember the context in which the, the time context, the timing of when this movie was released. It was released sure. on July 27th, 1945, which was two months after VE Day, Victory in Europe mm-hmm. Day, was two weeks before VJ Day, Victory in Japan Day. So at yeah. that point, the, the spirit of the nation was sort of war-weary, but on the other hand, rejoicing in the fact that uh, victory had taken place in Europe and victory was almost at hand in Japan. So there's there is an element of that, and that, that light heartedness and the happiness of that moment of the end of World War II, in a sense, is, is sort of, while it's not while it's not explicitly mentioned in the film, you have that, that kind of background in the, uh, in the film. It cost about $800,000 to produce, and it grossed between $3.5 and $4 million at the box office. So it was, uh, to your point about Barbara Stanwyck being a talent, a uh, major Hollywood talent, those box office numbers speak for themselves. Well, you you brought up the fact that it was released during the summer, and one 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 thing that's interesting about that period of filmmaking is, is that all the f- studios were turning out war themed movies. And even though this is not a war movie, you know the war is a theme in the background because the lead male character is a war hero. What was happening was was that because. Hollywood was sensing that the war was winding down. Mm-hmm. They were all these movies that they had filmed during that period of time with war themes. They were just releasing them, trying to get them out into the marketplace <laughs> before the war was over. over. You know, and and when things would, you know, before things, everything was shifting to you know another perspective. And so I think that's the reason why that film came out at the time it did, rather than at Christmas time, because they just wanted to get it out there, and it was opportune that they did that. You know, as you said, you know, before VE Day. As a result, you know there certain films that Warner Brothers, for example, had filmed in 1944, but held back for release for about two years. One of them is the film noir thriller, The Big Sleep, directed by Howard Hawks and starring Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall. It was filmed in 1944, but it was held back till 1946 uh-huh. because they just they just felt that that film, which had no war themes, you can release it later. It's okay. You know, it's not going to become dated, but, but it's interesting that you pointed that out. But I'll move on to Christmas Holiday, which is a film from a, the same vintage, same time period, but made a year earlier. Christmas Holiday was made at Universal Studios in 1944. Uh, It's based on a W. Somerset's mom novel um, uh, that was published in 1939. It's written by Herman Mankiewicz, who had written Citizen Kane. It was directed by Robert Siodmak. And Robert Siodmak was a German immigrant who had come to the United States as a result of sensing, he was was of Jewish background, and he, he and other filmmakers like Billy Wilder and Fred Zinnemann and people like that had come to the United States when they sensed that things in Europe were starting to become dangerous for them. So he basically made a series of film noirs at Universal during that time where he he had a view of America that was slightly cynical, that only somebody from overseas can have that perspective, if you understand what I'm saying, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and Christmas Holiday is it's a dark film noir that it starts off with one story and then becomes another story entirely. It's about a young service member who played by Dean Herons. He plays Lieutenant Mason, who just graduated from officer candidate school in North Carolina. And he gets a Dear John letter from his girlfriend in San Francisco. So, so there's a San Francisco theme. Absolutely. Another reason to watch the film. 
Exactly. And he's angry that the, he's gotten this Dear John letter and that his girlfriend has married another man. And he's on his way flying from North Carolina to San Francisco to confront her. But due to bad weather, um, he's diverted to New Orleans, where he ends up in a, a kind of a roadhouse nightclub that those of us who are discerning can realize that it's basically, you know, um, a highbrow brothel. Mm-hmm. And he meets a singer played by Deanna Durbin, who is very troubled, who asks her, who asks him, she asks him to take her to Christmas Mass that evening. And she breaks down emotionally at, during the Mass. And later at a, at a diner, she tells him her life story. And we see in flashbacks her life story. And she, is, she was married to a man played by Gene Kelly, who was a ne'er-do-well from a highbrow family in New Orleans. But he was a gambler, and he also had a dangerous kind of temper, and he murdered a bookie. And so she married a man who ended up becoming a convicted murderer. So that becomes a big bulk of the movie is her relationship with Gene Kelly. And there's even more that happens because Gene Kelly's character in the present time of the storyline has escaped from prison, and he's on his way back to New Orleans to confront Deanna Durbin. I don't want to give away too much to the listener, but that's the setup of the movie. So the movie is set over Christmas Eve and, and Christmas Day. It doesn't sound like a Christmas movie, but if, if one watches the movie with the Deanna Durbin character, it's a story about, I think, redemption and rebirth in a lot of ways. Lieutenant Mason's character is angry about a uh, failed relationship but he finds in the course of the story when he gets to know Deanne Durbin's character uh, how bad it is to hold on to a relationship that has ended badly and Deanna Durbin herself has to let go of that bad relationship with Gene Kelly and start her life over again. It's interesting how she's a bar hostess as you mentioned and yes. she's introduced to, to Dean at this roadside brothel but very high end and mm-hmm. she asks him to take her to Midnight Mass and so they go to Midnight yeah. Mass in St. Louis Cathedral in New Orleans yeah. and during the Mass and they, they spend about five minutes on the Mass all in Latin it's a solemn high mass, the whole nine yards with altar boys and the the, very focused on the midnight mass. She breaks down in the -hmm. congregation and she's sobbing and just wailing her head off. So that then begins you. So it's the, the classic of the lady of the night who on Christmas Eve goes to church and is sorry for her life and sorry for herself and is, you know, weeping and crying. And, and you, you also mentioned that after mass, they go to, uh, they go to a place to have, uh, to have a bite to eat. She says she's hungry. So he takes her to a place to eat. And when they're finished having dinner, he says, uh, he says, well, where are you going to spend the night? She says, well, I'm just going to stay here in the restaurant and I'll, I'll drink coffee and chat with people. And then that you also say to yourself, she's a hooker. She's going to spend the night in the, in the hotel. And so Dean rescues her, brings her back to the hotel, gets her a room at the hotel and yeah. saves her. So, which was quite a change for Deanna Durbin because Deanna Durbin, she was kind of a goody two shoes, girl next door, squeaky clean image uh, early on in her career. And in this particular film, she plays a, a somewhat shadowy, questionable lady of the night, changed her name to Jackie Lamont. So uh, yes. tell, tell us about her mother-in-law because she's a piece of work. Well, the, the mother-in-law in the storyline is played by a uh, character actress, Gail Sondergaard, who had won an Os- Best Supporting Actress Oscar a few years earlier for a Betty Davis film called The Letter. And she was one of the great character actresses of that era, but she always is very sinister. And the mother-in-law character is a very domineering character in the background. She blames Deanna Durbin for the fact that things have gone wrong with her son. She recognizes that her son has a bit of a violent, psychotic nature, and she had put on the Deanna Durbin the sense of guilt 
that I entrusted you with my son so that you could straighten him out. And that, look what's happened. You know, he, he's gotten himself into trouble. That's all your fault. And I think that's the reason why the Deanna Durbin character has, you know, not moved on with her life and has become this prostitute. As she says at the end of the movie, she's done all this to punish herself. She's allowed a lot of shame and guilt put on her by Gail Sondergaard's character and even Gene Kelly's character to some degree overtake her life so that she cannot move on. It's a very it's a very sinister performance. And to watch Deanna Durbin like this was shocking to audiences at the time. Just to give listeners some context, you gave a little description about her career, but I really want to give help the listeners really understand who Deanna Durbin was. Deanna Durbin in the 1930s and 1940s was a superstar. The reason why you've never heard of her is because she meant it that way. She had been a star at Universal for 12 years made almost 20 you know, 20 plus films there was a was a huge you know box office star it's been said that her movies helps you know save the studio from bankruptcy and and she was a bit of a rival uh, to judy judy garland i'm not going to try to get into that because that's going to take us off to a different subject the listener can go you know google deanna Durbin versus judy garland and see all the stuff that was there but deanna Durbin, in essence was a girl singer that arrived on the scene before garland did and garland i think always felt a bit of competitiveness and insecurity because Durbin became the star first, and also because Durbin chose to leave acting in 1948 at the age of 26. She moved to Paris. She moved to a farmhouse outside of Paris. She never looked back. She never did a public appearance again. She only gave one rare interview about her career in like the mid-90s, not, excuse me, the mid-1980s to a columnist. She turned down all offers of work. I understand that she was offered, I believe, uh, the stage version of The Sound of Music and she turned it down because she just felt like that was a different life and I've moved on. So she raised a family and I consider her one of the greatest stars of classic Hollywood and a, and a true winner. She did it, then she had a life, and she got out of it. But if you've never heard of her, it's because she meant it that way. But she was a brilliant soprano singer, and in the course of the movie, she sings two songs. She sings, actually, the movie introduces the Frank Lesser song, which became a standard. Spring will be a, a little late this year. Spring oh, well, will she... be a little late this year. <laughs> and then later, Sean, sings, Sean, uh, it's not every day that, that our listeners get an opportunity to hear your dulcet tones can we sing, 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 a, sing a couple of bars sing a couple of bars from the other song that she sings well i'll just i'll just finish with spring will be a little late this year a little late arriving my lonely world over here and then the other song which has a great deal of thematic relevance is the irving berlin standard always I'll be loving you always with a love that's true always. I'm doing this as a Christmas present to the listener, okay? You know, so, you know, but back to the movie. Oh, sure, movie. sure. Let me, yeah. let, let me just interject here. Let's, yeah. let's take a moment and talk about the young Gene Kelly because this is, sure. this, this is Gene Kelly in the very early days of his career before mm-hmm. he became the dancer, before he became the superstar dancer uh, singing in the rain and in American Paris, yes, etc. Yeah. And before he became the squeaky clean, nice guy next door. He's a kind of dark character here. Tell us a little bit about the character that Gene, Gene Kelly plays here. 
Well, Gene Kelly, like I said before, he comes from a prominent family, but it, but it's not. It's one of those families that came from that basically has like a social status name, but doesn't really have any money left. And he's like, a, like I said, ne'er do well who's interested in gambling and is dabbling in things that someone of of his stature really should not. But he's also got a very violent temper. It's a dark side um, that uh, Deanna Durbin, when she first meets him, she sees that he's handsome and charming, but she does not pick up on these aspects of his character. At that period in his career, he had just started at MGM, and he had done films at MGM of a, of a singing and dancing nature, but his characters were always guys that were not squeaky clean right. and, and in these early MGM films, and that's why when he did Christmas Holiday, it wasn't quite a shock for viewers because that image had not you know, had not fully formed yet. But I think in retrospect, when people see him in this role, it is shocking for them. Because now that we have this um, overall image of what Gene Kelly is as a, as, as a whole, it's not the usual kind of role, but it shows the dramatic, it shows the dramatic range that he had to offer. And similarly for Deanna Durbin, she was always playing at Universal, these cheerful, can-do, confident young women. And really, a lot of her films are really, truly charming, like A Hundred Men and a Girl and Mad About Music. Those are great movies. Mm -hmm. And listeners should go seek them out. But by 1944, she had gotten sick of those movies. And so because she was Universal's biggest star, they developed this movie for her so that she could have a shot at doing a dramatic role. And it's a movie that she's proud of. But And it did well, actually. Yes. At the time when it was released, it did well financially. But soon afterwards, Universal kind of put her back, you know, in comedic, lighthearted movies again, which... Uh, frustrated her and that's why you know four years later she retired completely and permanently from the business sean let me let me just jump in there with a quick question in closing on this film why should our listeners want to watch a film noir about christmas well i think it's because i said it's a movie about redemption yes. and rebirth yes whenever i watch this movie i always feel like by the time you get to the end of the movie, you feel like very emotionally fulfilled because these characters have gone through some dark passages in their lives, but there is a sense of hope at the end. There's a sense of hope at the end that the Deanna Durbin character may find peace, and there's a sense of hope that the Dean Herons character, uh, the, the Lieutenant Mason character, you know, has learned a lot of lessons in life and that um, he's not going to go to San Francisco after all to confront his fiance, and that he's going to he's got a bright future ahead of him because in the course of 24 hours. He's learned a lot about life, yes. you know, so I think that's the reason why. So I think Christmas movies don't all have to be cheerful. I think Christmas is often a time of a lot of self-reflection and emotion. And I think movies like this reflect that. I just want to close by referring to the character actor, Dean Herons, who played Lieutenant Mason. He was a Broadway actor of you know, considerable accomplishment when he came to Hollywood to do Christmas Holiday, but he never became a film star. But eventually he and his wife, June Dayton, who was also another Broadway actress, they both settled in Hollywood and they became very prolific character actors on television for the next three or four decades. And so I, I did a blog entry about Dean Herons on my blog and people who can look it up can read it. And I, I really think character actors like him really get short shrifted when we talk about film and television history. He, he was like another character actor from Broadway at the time, uh, William Prince, who came to, you know, came to Hollywood and didn't become a film star. But, but had a very long and lasting um, career as a character actor. And, and we really need to you know give attention to people like that. So I want to move to the final film, Black yes. Christmas. Okay, so we started with a comedy, and then we've gone to a 
film noir that has dark elements but does have elements of hope and then now we're going to complete nihilism with the black christmas which is you're laughing but anyway <laughs> i know i it's a very suspenseful terrifying horror film from 1974 um, it's a canadian horror film set at christmas time and it involves three sorority sisters played by olivia hussey margot kidder and andrea martin as the sorority house starts to empty out for the holidays unbeknownst to them a psychotic killer has broken into the house and is hiding in either the attic or the den mother's bedroom and he's murdered the den mother and he's been terrorizing them by uh, making terrifying phone calls from the den mother's separate phone line and the three young women keep calling the police saying oh we're getting these horrible crank phone calls can you do something about it and one of their housemates who he's already murdered a young uh, a young woman named claire uh, has disappeared and so they're all a little bit unsettled by what's going on, but they don't realize the extent to which their lives are imperiled. Black Christmas um, is a bit of a precursor to the uh, slasher horror films yes. that became popular in cinema later on, a few years later with films like Halloween and Friday the 13th. But Black Christmas, it has very little explicit violence on screen. It really focuses yes. more on atmosphere, uh, performances and suspense it's got something that a lot of those films don't have it has a really top-notch cast of mm -hmm. actors that were already accomplished and, or actors that were on their way up olivia hussey you know as you remember was uh, juliet and romeo and juliet care delay who plays her mysterious boyfriend in the movie who's a bit of a red herring in the storyline is famous for the stanley kubrick film 2001 uh, marco kidder had already done a few films like uh, brian de palma's horror film sisters but she was three years away from becoming Lois Lane in the Superman films. Uh -huh. Andrea Martin would become famous on the SCTV um, sketch comedy television series. John Saxon, who plays the police detective assigned to investigate these prank phone calls, is a renowned character actor from Hollywood. So these are very fine actors in this movie. And I think what makes this movie work is that it's set in a suburban Canadian setting, kind of a nice, you know, quaint, large house. There's beautifully, you know, covered, you know, sidewalks and streets outside and whatever have you. But instead of creating an atmosphere of coziness, like in Christmas in Connecticut, it creates an atmosphere of absolute isolation and terror yes. for, for viewers. I think it's actually a great film. I think when one researches the reputation of Black Christmas, I think most people will find that it has risen in prominence in recent decades where you know very accomplished film scholars consider it one of the best horror films ever made. I think people who are fans of horror films and are, are just you know cineasts in general, are, they already are very familiar with Black Christmas. But I think the average viewer may not know uh, about it, and I'm just recommending it as sort of an alternative to the cheery Christmas movies that uh, kind of pervade our, our consciousness during this time of the year. Um, it's got, I'll just simply say that it ends as mysteriously as it begins, but it doesn't frustrate me in that regard. It ends in a way that actually uh, evokes my imagination, making me wonder what happens next. I won't give the ending away because, quite frankly, the ending really sent a chill down my spine. I'll leave it at that because I don't want to. I don't want to steal the uh, the excitement from people who haven't seen it. But Sean, why has this film become such a cult like film? Oh, I just think, like I said, the quality of the movie, it's so well made. It's so well acted. It, the atmosphere is chilling, and I think it's because this is a little bit of a spoiler because the identity of the killer and his origins and what he's really after remain 
a mystery even if, even after the movie's over. And I think it's because of that. It's it's haunting. It, it, it haunts the viewer. And I think because of that, that's the reason why um, it has risen in prominence. But the other slasher horror movies, um, as I've you know as as I've alluded to, they were more overt. They were overt in terms of their presentation, but they were also overt in terms of what the stories were about and what the characters were about. And here, it's it, it makes makes the character almost a quasi supernatural presence you're not really quite sure what he is or who he is much less who he is so i think that's the reason why uh, it's risen in prominence but like i said the skill of the movie in terms of the direction the fact that the characters are really well thought out and and well acted i think all of it came together it was a perfect storm to make something that would really you know would engage the audience but interestingly the movie did well enough at the time of release warner brothers was a little bit the title of the movie black christmas they didn't want to release it as black christmas Christmas because they there was all these black black exploitation movies at the time oh, right. so they called it they called it Silent Night Evil Night originally you know in America and then eventually they re-released it as Black Christmas and eventually its, its reputation grew under that title uh, Black Christmas I also understand that NBC aired it used uh, calling it calling it Stranger in the House which makes it sound like some sort of a disease of the weeks kind of storyline <laughs> so I think so so I think I think it took a while for people to catch on to it because it had several different titles but i think by the 80s and 90s its reputation was really on its way to becoming what it is now and like i said i i think it's a brilliant movie but i've jokingly and you know humorously always joked that my chris favorite my favorite christmas movies were christmas in connecticut christmas holiday and black christmas because there's a part of me that adamantly refuses to acknowledge it's a wonderful life as a favorite christmas movie okay <laughs> I like it fine. I, in fact, because when I, whenever, whenever I end up watching It's a Wonderful Life on television, um, even though I resist, you know, the sentimentality of it, it does eventually, you know, grab me. And eventually, by the end of the movie, I'm quite moved by it. But I think you made an interesting comment. It's a Wonderful Life is like a friend that you don't necessarily want to always invite over but eventually when you do end up spending time with that friend you're glad that you know them and you're glad they're around so i think that's the best analogy or the best description of how i feel about it's a wonderful life i agree sean and sean in the remaining few minutes of the podcast do you have some closing thoughts for our listeners as they mull what films they should be watching on christmas eve christmas day boxing day the holidays well, I just hope that number one, whatever whatever holiday you celebrate, whatever faith that you follow, I hope that this holiday season has been a great one for you, and I hope that 2023 is a great new year for you. I'll I'll say this: if the holiday season is a holiday season, it's a time it's a time of the year that's difficult for you. I hope these three movies, which are very entertaining keep your mind focused and busy and other things so that it helps you get through difficult times. The holidays can also be tough for people. And I've always found in life that great movies, great cinema, stories that engage me as uh, stories that are, you know, really thoughtfully and uh, skillfully told really can distract me where I can forget about my problems. And then once I have forgotten about my problems, you know, it helps me kind of have a new perspective on things. So at the very least, I hope that these three movie recommendations, whether for whatever reason, you know, give you something rewarding over the holiday season. Well, Sean, I want to thank you once again for sharing your three most favorite Christmas films with us. And I know, isn't that silly? <laughs> isn't that, isn't that and, no, but, but actually, but your closing thoughts are very apropos. 
the, we're at the end of the year. For, as, you, as you rightly say, for many people, the holidays can be kind of a trying time emotionally. And these three films are films that you can, for many people, they'll be, they'll be new films. They're, they're not new films, they're vintage. But for many people, it'll be the first time that they see them. And each one of them, or all three of them, they can engross themselves in. You've, you've given our listeners a, a very good sense of, of the uplifting nature of all of them and of film in general. So thank you. Well, I wouldn't say Black Christmas is uplifting, but I'll just simply say it'll probably take you out of your problems. Let's put it that way. That's right. Up along the lines of somebody's always got it worse than I have. Yes, exactly. <laughs> thank you. Okay. Thank you. Once again, Sean, thank you very much. It's been a terrific year. We've done 12 of these podcasts together. We were just going over the schedule for next year, and you will be back in full force with another 12 at least podcast coming through next year. So once again, Sean, thanks for being a cornerstone of the San Francisco Experience podcast. You're welcome. And once again, uh, thanks to the listeners for their patience with listening to my opinions. You know, I, I hope I hope they enjoyed it. and I hope they found something meaningful. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 354. The San Francisco Experience is featured on 19 platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon Music, and Odyssey, with listeners in 65 countries. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco.